Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate. Hello, good morning. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland's talking. Between now and midday, we'll be talking about various subjects, but we'll kick off with Syria. Was it right to launch military action? We cannot allow the use of chemical weapons to become normalised, either within Syria, on the streets of the UK or elsewhere. We must reinstate the global consensus that chemical weapons cannot be used. This action is absolutely in Britain's national interest. The Labour leader doesn't agree. More bombing, more killing, more war will not save life, will just take more lives and spawn the war elsewhere. So what are your thoughts? The phone lines are open now. 033-2020-401. Also on the programme today, five shops are closing down every week in Scotland. I'm asking what can be done to save our high streets and hearing from shopkeepers like Lynn. I'm a, a small business owner and um, it, it's harder than ever now. Are we relying too much on grandparents? There's another question for you. More than half say they're now roped into providing childcare for their grandchildren while the parents are at work. And in almost all cases, they don't get a penny for it. Is that a problem or is it good that kids today see more of their grandparents than ever before? Scotland's Talking, the podcast. So... What do you think about Syria then? Here we are, we're asking the question, was it right to launch the military strike? What are your thoughts? And should we in the UK be launching military action without MPs voting on it in Parliament? Is that not what they're there for? Should that not have been, should they have not been given the opportunity to do that? Well... Uh, Theresa May says she legally went for it. The Russians, of course, have been actively involved in the Syrian civil war for some time now. And there are warnings that this could escalate. Professor Peter Jackson is an expert in global security issues. He's been a guest on the programme before and uh, delighted to welcome him back uh, from the University of Glasgow. Peter, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. So, for for our listeners, and f- giving the your expert look on this here, what, what what is your take on this? Did you expect it to happen first of all, without them going to to the Commons and asking for MPs' uh, uh, permission to do this, so to speak? Yes, I did. I think that the government has made a, a, a legal justification. I don't know how persuasive most people find it, but uh, certainly. The idea that uh, you know the regime of Bashar al-Assad would be able to use chemical weapons without uh, uh, any repercussions on its people, as you know, it's 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 been it's been it's been clear that there would be some kind of response, given the United States response uh, this time last year, almost one year ago. So there, I, I'm not surprised by what's happened. I do think that it's not a policy that's going to solve the problem, however. So not solving the problem, do you think it was even expected to do so to solve the problem by our political leaders? Did they have that in mind that if we do this, this will solve the problem? Or were they realistic enough to to think this could cause even more problems here? Well, I don't think that the strikes as they were as they were delivered will cause significantly further problems. I don't think they will make 
they will, they will, there's no threat at the moment of a global confrontation with, for example, Russia. Mm-hmm. The strikes were very carefully calibrated so as to avoid both civilian and foreign casualties. And when the word foreign means, of course, Russian and Iranian, but especially Russian military personnel in Syria. I think this was a very careful move to try and send a message to the Syrian regime that it cannot use you know, chemical biological weapons against its own population with impunity. The problem is that as long as Russia supports the Assad regime, and as long as the Assad regime feels it's uh, fighting for its life against an existential threat, and remember it's already used chemical weapons against its population, therefore, if it doesn't hold on to power, it's very clear that both Assad and members of his, his senior inner circle will be brought to book by the international community and face charges of crimes against humanity. Therefore, given that the regime has already used these weapons, there's not much of an uh, incentive for them to refrain from doing so unless the, uh, the, the Western coalition of the British, the French, and the Americans can somehow significantly degrade its capabilities in this regard. And I'm not sure that they will. But one dimension of the problem, which I think has already has been rather has been has been ignored, is that what's at stake on another level is not just the behavior of the Assad regime in, in Syria, but rather what the Western powers like to call a rules-based international system. And I think this is what uh, both Theresa May and Emmanuel Macron, in particular, but also, if not Donald Trump, certainly James Mattis his Secretary of Defense were trying to defend. And this is much more difficult because uh, targeted strikes like this aren't going to deter anyone. What's needed is kind of old-fashioned diplomacy, a very systematic campaign of international diplomacy that will exert more and more pressure on Russia to change behavior, ratcheting up the pressure gradually using economic sanctions, using the threat of military sanctions, but all the while leaving the Russians the opportunity to climb down without losing face. Mm. And and uh, these kinds of campaigns take a lot of time and effort. And as long as Donald Trump's in the White House, I don't see any hope that we'll see the kind of international diplomatic effort that's necessary, I think, to, you know, to persuade the Putin regime in Russia to to change its behavior, change its position in Syria, and change its behavior more broadly. And I'm sorry if I took too long there, but this is what I think. But when we see um, t- television pictures coming out of Syria of, of him, uh, as, as we, you know, children, men, women, all being uh, affected by by the attacks that Assad is making, and this has been going on, we know it's not the first time, last week's not the first time, but we know that diplomacy hasn't actually worked so far, has it? Is it was it time for action, or, or was it just? I mean, also, I mean, you mentioned uh, President Trump. Diplomacy is, is is not his strong thing, is it? Well, that's I think the real problem is in is that uh, you know governments feel under pressure to be seen to be doing something immediately, and what I think the public needs to understand is that. Uh, you know, patient international diplomacy backed up by the threat of force, not only economic sanctions, but the threat of force, 
In other words, you know, sending a couple of uh, battle groups into the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean. These kinds of measures combined with diplomacy, combined with always allowing the uh, Putin regime to climb down from its position without, you know, being humiliated. This takes months and months and months, and neither the public nor especially the American president, I don't think, are have the patience that's necessary, and this is, I think, a real problem. What would you say to my listeners this morning who might be sitting thinking, this has nothing to do with us, we should not be getting involved? Well, uh, it, I suppose, depends on the extent to which we feel in Great Britain that it's necessary to uphold norms of civilized behavior and to take measures to protect innocent people who are being targeted by their their population, women and children, whether uh, Great Britain can actually stand by and not do very much. I'm not saying that it's sending a few missiles uh, uh, and, and a few, a few you know, fighter-bomber sorties into Syria will solve the problem. I'm not saying that I agree that what's being done will actually solve anything. What I am saying is that if we believe in the concept of an international community, and if we believe that we have responsibilities to people outside our borders, it's, I think, necessary to to do something and to take action, not necessarily the action that's been taken over the last 48 hours, but uh, I think support for an international diplomatic effort of the kind I've just described. Mm. Peter, thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today and uh, starting us off with that, that subject. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Not at all. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, Ali. Bye-bye now. Professor Peter Jackson is an expert in global security issues at the University of Glasgow. Uh, thanks to him for joining us today. So what do you think then? Was it right to launch military action? Was it right even to, to launch military action without going and getting the, the views of the House of Commons first and the, the MPs? Or was it a case that if she waited, and I mean the Prime Minister by she, if she waited uh, for that debate to take place, if she'd recalled Parliament um, and it had gone against her, and, and they said no, then would she have been in an awkward situation by not being able to carry out uh, the President of the United States' wishes? Um, you know, would she have had to say no, as in Germany said, no, we're not getting involved. On you go. What are your thoughts? You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Sunday morning, it's Ali Bally with Scotland's Talking and asking the question on Syria at the moment, of course, was it right to launch military action? And was it right to launch that military action without taking it to the House of Commons first and getting the MPs to, to vote? Uh, your thoughts on that? Oh, treble three, twenty twenty four oh one. 2020 uh, John, good morning. Sorry, I've pressed the wrong button. Right, it's John Carr. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. John here. John here, right. There's John Bissett, right. Yes, sorry, right. Ali. Sorry, they're putting far too many Johns on here for me. I've well, no there we go. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right, OK. Yes, questions need to be asked. I, I've got a question, Ali. I think Theresa May sent in, these planes into Syria 
because if she took it to Parliament and recalled Parliament, I believe they would turn around and say no to her. I think. Right. I uh, also the fact that Assad is a criminal, a war criminal, a person that bombs and maims his own children and and women. I can't believe a man like that is still alive. Russia, okay, you can look at the diplomatic side. Putin tried to get Assad to go and sit at a table round with the rest of people, but he refused. He refused mm -hmm. because he's the type of person that he thinks that he's a dictator, basically. I've no time for people that use chemical warfare against their civilians. At the end of the day, certainly, questions will be asked to the House of Commons tomorrow. Um, but, but what can be done about Assad? You know, th th this, we, we go in there and we, we start this military action and we, we bomb the, uh, the chemical weapons factory where it's supposed to have been. Um, what, is, what do you think Assad's reaction will be? Do you think it's going to bother him? I mean, you're right, he's a dictator. It's not going to bother him, is it? No. And the thing is, Putin forewarned him that there was an attack uh, imminent. OK? So he could have moved some yeah. of the Nerve Guard agents out and, and probably did before we, we struck. Uh, the, but the fact that, getting back to the main theme, uh, Miss Timmy should have gone to Parliament, recalled Parliament, to let every one of the MPs, because that's who we voted for. We didn't vote for Timmy. We voted for our MPs so that uh, they could give the voice to the people. Okay, right, John. Thank you very much for that. Uh, your view there, John Carr. We'll come to you now. Uh, what's your thoughts, John? Good morning. Good morning, Ali. Well, Ali, I sit here and I listen to the United States of America and Great Britain waving the finger at other countries, and it's terrible what they've done. Don't get me wrong, using nerve gas on anybody is a disgrace, but. The United States of America, if we look in our history books, is the only country in the world that has used two nuclear weapons, wiping out thousands and thousands of people. What right have they got to wave their finger at anybody? Great Britain sells billions and billions of pounds worth of arms to Saudi Arabia and look at the, the trouble and the, the lives that are being lost there. What right have we got to wave our finger? We're as bad as they are, Ali. We should be leading by example as a country. And for Theresa May to put her hands up and say, right, go ahead and bomb. Will it be that easy if the, if the excuse the verbals, but if it, it comes and it hits the fan and the country's asked to stand up and defend? Will it just be a case of, right, we're going to do it? Theresa May had no right to do that. She had, there is something put in place, it's called the government. She should have went to government and asked government should that be happening? And if I can just put another wee thing in, all the skullduggery is going on with this um, double agent with the, the nerve gas. We're now finding out that the nerve gas wasn't from Russia, it was from another country, but all oh, that doesn't matter. Theresa May's up eh, crossing swords with Russia for no reason, as far as we can make it out now. So it's all got to be looked at very carefully, Ali, but I don't think... We as a country and the United States as a country 
are in a position to wave the finger at anybody. OK, John, um, some good points there. Let's uh, also welcome to the programme uh, Stephen Gethins, who is SNP spokesman for Europe. Stephen, good morning. Welcome back. How are morning, you? Morning, Ali. I'm good, thank you. Busy few days for you? It has been. It has been, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, thanks yeah, for I'm, taking I'm the time busy. out. Yeah, you seem to have been everywhere. Um, uh, what then, just to what John's saying there, yeah. you know, that, that there should have been um, uh, consultation yeah. with the House of Commons, etc. What, what's... The SNP's views on this, then? Well, look, all week, because remember that this is a this chemical weapons attack, and, and you, you know, like some of your previous callers have said there, um, should, should appall us all. I think, I think let's get that. You know, these are appalling chemical weapons attacks, mm. and if that's on the streets of Salisbury or the streets of Syria, it's an appalling act um, that happened last weekend. And, and what we've been saying all week is that we needed to recall Parliament because that's, that's, that's the system of democracy that we've got. We've got a parliamentary democracy, and we go down and represent our constituents. And we think that this merited the seriousness that Parliament should have been recalled, and we should have been able to discuss what action came next. Because the whole point in having a Parliament is that you're down there to debate and discuss the issues, and hopefully to get a better outcome at the end of it. It doesn't always work like that, but that's, that's the point in having MPs. Right, so um, they've gone ahead, and yep. what happens now then as far as, if, if you know, you, you get into the House of Commons of, uh, uh, and, you know, the message is coming through to the Prime Minister that this was not what was wanted, yep. it's done now. She, she, you know, she, she's, um, she's jumped the gun, hasn't she? Well, I, I think so. Look, the Syrian conflict's been going on for seven years now, mm. costing hundreds of thousands of lives and, a, and a, millions of people displaced as, 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 as refugees as, as well. And I think she was probably a bit quick off the mark because previously when we debated and discussed um, bombing Syria, I sit in the Foreign Affairs Committee and that's across, you know, with, with members of other political parties. And we set out a number of criteria that I think you should ask a government before they go to war. What are the... What are the military objectives? What are the long-term political objectives? What's your legal basis um, for going to war? And I think it's right that you ask those questions. One, one area where I would agree with what Theresa May said yesterday is she said that um, the, the, the gravest thing a prime minister can do or any politician can sign off on is, for, um, is to send your armed forces to, to kill and be killed, to take part in military actions. And that should have the highest threshold in terms of um, the debate and discussion around it, and I don't see how individual airstrikes in a in a conflict that is rich with bombs and is already rich with belligerence um, adds anything or or helps to bring an end to this dreadful conflict. What concerns me, and I'm I'm no expert. I'm I'm just Joe Public, if you like, Stephen. You, you've got a lot of experience in in what we're talking about here. But what concerns me is that it would seem that our Prime Minister has gone along with Donald Trump and yeah. what he wanted to do. And if she had held off, then we wouldn't have been part of this because he would have gone ahead with it anyway. Well, and I get concerned yeah. because he's not the most reliant, you know, and I'm sorry to any Americans who may be, but he's, he's not somebody that I would like leading my country. He's nuts. No, no, he's not somebody I'd like leading my country either. Um, but I suppose the job that I can do as a member of Parliament is to try and hold the UK, you know, the British Prime Minister to account. Um, I can't hold Donald Trump to account, but I've been really worried that he's been carrying out, if you like, this by Twitter over the past 
few days. Now, I don't think anybody would disagree this is a really serious issue, and that's why you have a parliament, to really get into the in, into the guts of something, give everybody their say, um, but to carry out, you know, sort of stuff that, this is serious stuff, you know, mm-hmm. this is taking action or not taking action, people die at the end of the day, this is serious, and I'm really worried about the way he's conducted himself on Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about Donald Trump anyway, and I think a lot of folk are, but I'm really worried about the way he's conducted himself on Twitter. And that's why I think it makes it all the more reason why you should be recalling Parliament. Because you say, right, we reject carrying out this discussion on Twitter. And if you reject carrying out, now, Twitter's got its role. Okay, I use it. And it's, and it's a helpful way to folk make their views known. And, and, um, and, and, you know, I might not always like that, but that's fine. But we'll have a Parliament so that we go through the debate and government is accountable to Parliament. And I can think of no stronger area where government should be accountable than whether or not to put service personnel into harm's way and to launch missiles um, and, and to launch missiles in the midst of an awful conflict which has got plenty of belligerence and not enough peacemakers at the moment yeah and and, and I'm with you on you know it's, it's it's the various things since he took over the office that he, yeah. he, he tweets and he uses this and and sometimes you, you just smile to yourself don't you and think no surely not but he does but it's getting it is as you say you've just said it there this is serious stuff yeah. and he's in charge of it, <laughs> and it it's, yeah and, and, and it can be terrifying sometimes which is and look that's that's the whole idea why we put checks and balances and I know look I get frustrated as a parliamentarian in Parliament with stuff you're not able to do. And I know folk out there getting... And you'll get on your programme, Alan. Mm. You'll get folk who are frustrated with Parliament. But sometimes the reason we have these checks and balances means that you don't just have one person who's, you know, taken all the decisions. Because do you know what? No politician always gets it right. No political party gets it right, which is why we live in a multi-party democracy. And I know, you know, and, and, and I'm an SNP member, so, so we're in government in Scotland and folk will criticise us, and that's fine, because... That's that's the way that that, that you that, that you kind of have it out there, and you try and let other people um, make their views known. And nowhere is this more important than if you're just making a decision over whether or not to go to war. And that's why we, we were even called for Parliament to be recalled yesterday on a Saturday, mm-hmm. which is an unusual thing to do. But I think it merited it. And and there are provisions in place here that you can recall Parliament at any point. And I think it's a pity that the government didn't um, didn't take us up on that. So where do we go now then? Well. Now the next the next steps is that tomorrow will the Prime Minister said she'll make a statement. I think we need more than that, and I think you need a debate. I think one thing that um, SNP MPs will try and do, that we'll try and do, is try and force a debate um, this week on, on, on the subject. I think having a Prime Minister statement is fine, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. I think we need a debate. I actually think we need a vote on this. We had a vote back in 2015 to take military action in Syria, and I don't see what's changed since then, in terms of having a vote on it. So that's tomorrow, and then hopefully we'll, we'll be pushing to try and have a debate on Tuesday. So I think that's where we'll go with it, and we'll have to see how things pan out tomorrow. What about one of my listeners there who called in and said, you know, that the reason she didn't go, and I'd sort of gone down the route earlier, mm. was that she was, you know, she would probably maybe not win the vote in the House of Commons. Now, if that vote goes ahead, as yeah. you were saying, and, and, yeah. and it actually happens, and uh, she doesn't get the vote that she she was maybe not expecting anyway, um, it's too late, is it not? Well, of course it's too late now, and that's why you have the vote. You should have the vote beforehand, because, look, that's a system of democracy that we've got. We have a parliament. The parliament holds the government of the day to account. But at the moment, on this issue, but not just on this issue, on a whole range of issues, Theresa May's, you know, seems to be 
scared of bringing things before Parliament. Mm-hmm. But, but, but folk, folk vote for their MPs, and we represent constituencies, and, and we go down there to represent... You know, I, I go down there and represent everybody in North East Fife as, as, as best I can, you know, and not everybody will agree with me, but that's, but that's the system that we have. And to dodge that level of scrutiny... I think says something about not having, you know, often not having confidence in your own position. And I think that's unacceptable. And I think it's something that you're going to hear raised, not just from SNP members, but from Lib Dem, Labour, and even some Conservative members who've got real concerns over this. Just finally, if that vote had taken place yep. and she'd received a no, yep. um, what are your thoughts on Donald Trump? Do you think he would have gone ahead with it anyway? It's difficult to say. You know, I, I can't see inside his mind, which is probably a, not, not a bad thing. <laughs> but, uh, no, just as well. It's probably just, just as well for myself. You imagine the nightmares. As horrendous. <laughs> I, might, I might not recover. Um, but I think that... Um, I, 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 I don't know. And actually, I, I think that the UK as, as a whole can have a role to, to be here as a peace builder. I think that once you become another belligerent in this conflict, it, it, it removes the manoeuvre that, 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 that you have to be a be a broker and that's why before when I was sitting on the committee we set out a number of questions that should be answered before military action takes place. Stephen, thank you very much indeed Thanks, for Sally. taking the time out to join us. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much indeed. Stephen Giffens, uh, the SNP uh, European spokesman. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. I'm Ali Bally and this is Arthur Keith. Arthur, good morning to you. How are you this morning? I'm great, thanks. Good. So what's your take on the whole Syria situation then? Uh, I, I think, one, I don't think it was the correct decision to to be involved to this extent. But, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, but two, if she was going to do it or going to allow it, I think she did it at the right time. And I say that because all the politicians are going from the government. But these guys want a debate to see if they'll hold the debate. And sometimes somebody's got to stand up and take whatever action they think's necessary. And at the end of the day, she's the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as... I don't believe she should have... Uh, we should have taken that action. And purely because history points to these... You know, in the recent past, that these things just don't work. We've done it in... Uh, Iraq, we've done it in Afghanistan, and it doesn't work. And, we've, uh, and I've worked in all these areas as a security consultant. And the mindset of the people is they'll take the help while the help's you know there, and then in some cases they turn and, and bite the hands that feed them. And it's not you know they, I don't believe that's going to do any good whatsoever in uh, allowing uh, airstrikes. In Syria, a short term, perhaps if they're blown up, if they said they've targeted a, a chemical weapons facility, well, that's great. Uh, that'll help for a very short period. And the other big issue is we're not, you know, if we if we fall out with the Iraqis, we can deal with it. If we fall out with the Afghan, we can deal with it or manage it. If we fall out with the Russians on a major issue, uh, like we, you know we have today, mm-hmm. I think we've got a major problem. You know, we talk about dictators. Uh, um, at the moment, the world's a very dangerous place with the lunatic in North Korea. We've got Donald Trump in America, and we've got Putin in Russia. Any one of these people are, you know, I, I, I think they're unstable. And I think we've got to tread very carefully 
and jumping in and getting involved. It's another it's another Blair Bush situation with the weapons of mass destruction and the invasion in Iraq. That's the way I, I feel about it. It's interesting y- y- your take on the, what you're really saying or what I, I get from what you're saying is that, you know, we also used to be um, a big country. You know, we used to be uh, able to say we police the other countries. We, you know, but we're not in that situation now, are we? Uh, no, we don't have the capability yeah. to. And yeah. I, was in, I was in the army for 25 years. And, and I've stood along the Kurds, I've stood along the Iraqis, I've stood along the Haitian National Police, and I've stood along the, 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 uh, in Palestine while I was a security director there. And, and I've seen it happening. And we, we just don't have the capability now, to, to, apart from maybe a surgical strike on mm, a legitimate target. We don't have the capability. We're not, the, the, you know, the army's being cut. Yep. The defence budget's been cut. Everything's been cut. And, and here we are again spending millions and millions of pounds on what I think is a useless act. And, I, and I'm not against... I'm a Tory. You know, I am... And I support the Prime Minister. But, uh, but I, I just don't see that she's got it right this time. As with the, the, chemical, uh, the chemical attack on the two Russian uh, civil, uh, civilians there, I'm not sure we got that right either. OK, Arthur, thank you very much indeed for uh, your call today and your thoughts. Let's go to Charles. Hi, Charles. Hi. Your point, please. Well, I think we should have gained more evidence since on, uh, about the chemical attack. What more evidence do you need than some of the television footage coming well, out of the country? days and days before that there was going to be a chemical attack. How do you know it was the rebels who um, staged that? Um, back Way back in 2011, as far back as I was saying, there was a third force operating in um, Syria. Um, nobody believed them. It was ISIS kind of dressed in Syrian government troops uniforms, um, taking out whole villages in Syria. How do you know it wasn't the rebels who done this? I don't know. No, exactly. No, no I don't know. You need know. more evidence. You need more evidence. So you would have held off, would you? Interesting. It's, there's there's no one so far in the programme uh, that has called in or, or text or whatever has actually come up with saying I mean, and, they would, would have gone with it. The UK and the US, right, and Syria, they've been after Assad um, for years and years. Um, and it was like um, got the ISIS, cover, they were dressing up in Syrian government forces, taking out whole villages. That's a proven fact. So you would have held back and you, you would have waited on more evidence. I'm not sure how we would have got yeah. more evidence. That's, that's the problem, isn't it? How the evidence... Well, that's, would... that's the problem, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, I mean, was it, was it Syria who bombed that country? You know what I mean? I mean, it's just the same. I mean, Western reporters, OK? Um, Western reporters, um, they reported on Aleppo saying it was war crimes, war crimes, right? What was the difference between Mosul... What was the difference between Raqqa and the end of the day? Exactly the same. Charles, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to have to stop you there because we, we are working up to the news. Uh, but thanks for your call. Keep them coming in. Uh, 033 2020 is the number. Or if you'd like to comment 
on text. The text number is 61054. Start your message with Ali. And emails, uh, email address is ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. Music and conversation for a Sunday morning news on the way. And then after the news, we'll continue talking about Syria. If that's what you, you want to, to comment on, don't worry about that. We'll continue with it through there. And um, We've also talked about previously about the struggle to make a living on the high street. Uh, we've got one council that I know of that are thinking of bringing in parking charges in the high street where there weren't. We've got high streets with more to-let signs and for-sale signs than I've ever seen before. Uh, so the high streets are in, in a bit of a decline. We're spending an awful lot on um, spending online. And, and as somebody said to me the other day, which I thought was a rather good point, was that you know, when we had a very, very busy high street, you didn't have non-stop courier vans running all over the country. And those courier vans are supplying jobs. So the jobs that are going from the high streets are being taken up in the big distribution centres or indeed the courier vans. So we may be not losing, we may be losing the high street jobs, but they are being coming back in another way because we are changing our spending and our shopping habits. We'll be talking about that. And are you a grandparent? Uh, it's too much expected of grandparents these days. Just a couple of more subjects we'll be talking about in the next hour. This is Scotland's Talking. Good morning. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. I'd like to hear what you think about what it's like to be a grandparent these days. Because a lot of us, it's not about putting your feet up. More than half of grannies and granddads are involved in providing childcare for their grandchildren, some of them for up to 20 hours a week. That's like a part-time job. Did you spend most of the Easter holidays being a volunteer childminder? Because if the mums and dads were paying, it would cost them over £4,000 over the year. But 96% told the survey they do unpaid and they do it willingly. So what's your story? And I'd like to hear from the mums and dads too. Could you juggle the demands of your job and family without your parents? Is it the grandparents who are keeping the economy going by allowing both parents to go out and earn a wage? And, you know, is it a sign of the times? Seven out of ten who took part in the survey say they spent more time with their grandchildren than they ever spent with their grandparents. Carrie Rose is editor of Grandsnet and she joins us on the programme now. Carrie, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. So this, this is something that uh, I, as a grandparent, recognise. You know, it doesn't affect me in the way that it affects a lot of people. But um, the price of, of nursery places and, and childcare is quite horrendous in, in most areas. So, therefore, you can understand where possible grandparents stepping in to help or being asked to help, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, grandparents are saving the UK economy £17 billion pounds a year in, <laughs> in unpaid childcare, which is, as you say, keeping the economy afloat in, in many ways. Um, you know, nine out of ten grandparents, we, we ran a survey on Grandsnet not so long ago, because this is something our users talk about on our forums all the time. Um, and nine out of ten grandparents do provide childcare for their grandchildren, whether it's occasional cover or daily care. Um, so it, it's a massive thing, and it's hugely helpful for parents, without question. 
I wonder what some parents would do without it because, you know, if, it, it, it is a case that many mums going back to work, and please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an expert on this subject, but a lot of mums going back to work after um, being off on maternity leave, when they have to find uh, the money for um, the nursery fees, if it's nursery that they're, they're sending their, their newly born to, or, um, a lot of the money that they're going out to work for is just wiped out by fees. So if they yeah, can cut, I mean, cut back there I, and help, grandparents' help is great. Yes, I know very, very many women who literally go back to work to pay for the childcare. They do it as an investment for their futures, obviously, to get back onto the career ladder and to contribute to the family economy in the longer term. But in the shorter term, for many women or, or men, depending on who uh, has the lower wage, they are working literally just to pay childcare, which is galling when you're working and juggling and, and everything like that. So if grandparents are able to help, it's wonderful in more than one way, though. partly economic, but also, you know, if your parents are looking after your children, first of all, they're building a lifelong bond, which is a fantastic thing to have. But also, you're going to trust your parents with your children in a way that you wouldn't necessarily feel about a, a stranger in a nursery looking after them. I mean, nurseries are great. I sent my own child to nursery. Um they are fantastic, but being able to have time with grandparents is incredibly valuable for everybody. Is it then um, a problem, Carrie? Is, is it something that we should be saying to ourselves, this is an issue here, or are most grandparents doing it willingly? Very many grandparents are doing it willingly. Um, I think, of the, certainly from our survey, um, those who look after their grandchildren on a regular basis, 91% do it for no money because they want to or because there isn't the money or, you know, for all different mm -hmm, reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we also know that many grandparents give up work in order to look after their grandchildren. I mean, what I would say is it's a wonderful thing if it's something you're entering to, into willingly. But as I say, it's something that people talk about on offer all the time. And there are many things to consider. First of all, don't take on more than you really honestly feel happy to take on because it's not good for anyone. Uh, you need to be honest from the outset. If you outline every possibility before you start out and have you know, a, a designated response for all of these things, what if the child's ill? What if you're ill? What if you want to take a holiday at a different time? If you can iron out all those things before you agree to taking on regular childcare, it really helps in the long run. What about the, um, the other aspect of it and grandparents coming and helping and, and, and taking over, not just for um, when mum and dad's out working, but if mum and dad are not looking after the child and the grandparents take on the responsibility of the child, I think it's, it's called kinship really, isn't it? It's, kinship it's, care. Yeah, absolutely. kinship care there. That's another area that um, grandparents are stepping in to, to fill that hole, isn't it? It is. I mean, obviously it's a lot more rare, um, compared to general childcare. Mm. But, you know, if for any reason, for illness, bereavement, or whatever other reason a parent isn't able to look after a grandchild, you know, the last thing a, grandchild, a grandparent wants to do is see their grandchild brought up by people outside the family if it is possible for them to look after them. And so um, for many grandparents, um, taking care of the child you know, is, is absolutely the answer. It's it's the way to remain close to the child, to offer them the family support and stability that they can't have from their parents. So it's a very, very valuable thing where it's needed. 
Okay. Uh, Carrie, thank you very much indeed for uh, telling us a little bit about uh, the, the survey there, uh, editor of Grantnet. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Uh, what do you think then? Of, of, do you treat it as a part-time job? And, you know, and as I said, I'd like to hear from parents as well who maybe feel they couldn't do it without grandparents or indeed parents who don't have the, the luxury of having grandparents around about them uh, and being able to, to help. But more than half, as we heard there from Gary, more of half of grannies and granddads are involved in providing childcare for their grandchildren, some of them up to 20 hours a week. Let's see, it's a part-time job. Uh, 033-2020-401 is the number. Stephen, how are you? How are you? How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. So um, what's your point on this then? I think grandparents should be chasing their children, Ali. What do you mean, should be chasing them? If they want to go down the road to having children, well, they should be able to put the children before their careers and, their, and their, either their parents or their grandparents to look after them. It's not like a dog, Ali. Because then it goes out of fashion. I, I really think parents today are selfish because I personally, and, and my good lady, we had four children and I never bared one of them as a burden and my grandparents or to, to me to look after them because... We wanted to get out there. We wanted jobs. We wouldn't have had these children. So what we did was, we, we didn't work. Well, I didn't work. The wife didn't work. So her children were five. Then they went to school. Then she did a part-time job. She didn't just have their wings and, and dump them in some, somebody's door. That's what I think a lot of parents do. I think it's wrong because these four get old in life. They want to relax. They want screaming mad wings on them. I think it's wrong, Alex. But what about, you know, you're saying they're being selfish. Were you and your wife not selfish in having children and not working for five years? No, I'll tell you what, no. If they wanted a couple of kids, Ali, folks, what we'll do is we'll just go and have a couple of kids. I'll go and work. We don't need fancy tellies. We don't need fancy phones. We don't need fancy cars or holidays. The money we have, we'll put in the, the children. Once they get to five, we'll put them in the school. Time. You go and get a part-time job. Fine. When you get your full-time education, great. If you want to go and see your granny, we'll take them down alley. You don't need to just say about having new wings or what's going to show you them. I've got a career here. I've got a fancy house. I've got a fancy motor I want. The poor wings are lying there. No, alley. I think they're selfish people. So have, have your children gone up to the stage that they've provided you with any grandchildren yet? children have, have told them and have told them themselves. They've looked at this world and I feel sorry that I brought them into this world and wish and knew that I hadn't brought any wings in. And they're the same. They say they will not have children to live in this world. That's what they're saying, Ali, and, and I totally agree with them. And see, they did have children under no circumstances would I be looking after them. And they would, they would tell that. It's your life. You've, if you can afford to bring them in here, Give them all the loving, caring, everything they need, an education. That bond between them, go down that road. But they're saying, no, because the world is not a kind place. And, and I, I agree with them. And I, I, I do look at my children and I look at society in a whole. I must need myself about it here, Alan. So if, if you can't... If you can't afford to have kids without the help of the grandparents, you shouldn't have them. That's that's right, in, that's that's in a nutshell. You shouldn't be looking after them either. You don't need to be looking after them. You don't need to be 
You don't know when he's used to get a goon to the house or go and get money off that estate and live off the estate. I'm not saying that. As long as there's one person in there, they can provide for them and the wife can sit back. You don't need a lot of money, Ali. You don't need, as long as you've got the love and the care and give their the children your attention. Because when the children grow up, who's their mother? Who's their father? Stephen, thank you. Your um, thoughts are always different. <laughs> I'll say that much. Um, thanks for that, for the call there. So if, if you can't afford to have children and um, can't afford to stay off work and not work for five years to, have, to go to school, according to Stephen, that's the way to do it. Don't agree with them, do you? Uh, 033 uh, I've got... Uh, two grandchildren, another one on the way. Delighted to see them any time. Um, and I, I don't feel they're a burden, <laughs> just in case uh, any of my family are listening. No, I don't consider them a burden at all. Delighted when you take them back home. Right, um, keep this coming in, of course. 0333 2020 401 is the number. Maeve Thompson is from Grandparents Plus, which describes itself as a charity dedicated to grandparents and their role in the care and development of their grandchildren. And Maeve joins us now. So what do you actually do then, Maeve? Um, Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. Um, We do a range of things to support grandparents. Um, So we have um, a research arm, which looks at kind of the latest research and latest issues facing grandparents. But we also uh, help grandparents who are in the greatest need, who usually are grandparents who have had that lovely relationship of being grandparents at the weekend and then have to step in because of a family emergency. So for those grandparents, often things get very serious very quickly and they do need a lot of support to help them raise those grandchildren full time. Right, so this also takes into account then what I was talking to to Carrie Rose a few moments ago there, uh, kinship care, and and they may have to step in and look after their grandchildren on a longer term. Exactly. So we actually support any family member who's in that position, which is the plus of our grandparents' plus, um, because I mean, the, it, it can be extremely challenging taking on children who might have been through trauma, might have experienced things that you would hope never, um, any child would ever go through. Um, so that's kind of the majority of our work is supporting those people who are kinship carers. It must be, you're quite right, you're talking there about the grandparents and the extra burden that puts on them. But we can't forget the grandchildren who, just as you say there, uh, have been going through, you know, absolute turmoil in their lives and, and they end up with granny and granddad and just not quite sure what's happened to mum or indeed mum or dad. Exactly. I mean, the the situations these children have been through can often be, you know, extremely damaging. And so they end up at grandparents. Often it's, it's a family crisis that leads to grandparents stepping in. So often it could be middle of the night, no kind of prior warning. So children are thrown into these situations. Ultimately, that's why we exist, because we think that children are better brought up. And research shows that they do better if they're brought up within their families. But it doesn't mean it's easy. And certainly raising a child on love alone is impossible. So we just want to make sure that all families in those situations have the support that they need. And what type of support do Grandparents Plus uh, give them, Maeve? Um, so we run a variety of things. We have an advice service, which is actually only in England and Wales, but it does offer kind of general advice to people across the UK um, on kind of what kind of support they can get, whether there's peer support groups in their area. Often we find when people are in these situations, it can feel like they're the only one. So obviously 
your peer group, your friends might not be going through the same thing. So it's very disorienting for, for grandparents who are taking on this amazing life change without people who've been through it too. So we do as much as we can to connect grandparents and, and other family members with other people in that situation to kind of help support them emotionally through it as well. It's great to know that support's out there, isn't it? It is, and I think it's absolutely crucial because if you think these people are stepping in, they've got some of the most traumatised children in the country. So the backgrounds of the children who end up in kinship care are often very similar to the backgrounds of children who go into local authority care. Hmm. So we just want to make sure that they're given the same status and they're recognised as doing the amazing jobs that they're doing. And if someone would just like to see if there's a bit of advice available, how do they get in touch with Grandparents Plus? Um, so they can give us a call. So our advice line um, is open Monday to Friday. Or the other thing I'd say, have a look on our website. There's loads of information there at grandparentsplus.org.uk. You can really kind of find out about the different issues and see what supports are there for you. Great. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning and telling us a bit more about Grandparents Plus. So if you're in that situation, a grandparent, uh, let's have your story. Has, has that happened to you? I mean, as I said, it's uh, 20 hours a week of some grandparents. And then there's other grandparents that end up for circumstances that I know uh, through speaking to others in in uh, uh, social work where grandparents have to step in, where um, the parents... Um, their sons or their daughters just can't cope. Uh, grannies and granddads take over the looking after the, the children. Is that a situation that you've been found in? Or did you spend most of the Easter holidays being a, a volunteer childminder? Uh, if, if you've got something you'd like to tell, uh, then I'd love to hear from you. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Uh, calls this morning coming in on Syria. We've also been talking about grandparents and we'll talk about high street shops in a few moments. But uh, let's go to Robin first of all. Robin, hi, how are you? Uh, good morning, Al. Well, first of all, Al, I was ill retired at 60. I'm now coming up for 83 and I thoroughly enjoyed taking my grandparents out for long, long walks to allow my daughter to go out and do a wee part-time job. Right. Because the first man had left her. Okay. And you understand, eh? And I still enjoyed it. And anybody who turns around and says that to have kids should look after themselves. I was brought up during the war years. And my late mother worked in a, a mission factory. And my dad worked for the Buttercup Dairy Company. But in the days, my, uh, my, my granny and three aunties were all lived in the same street. So... They looked after you. They'd be talking to you saying, oh, oh, you're not getting paid for this, you're not getting paid for that. It was all part of being a family, though, wasn't it's, it, Robin? Yes. And, and the bit is, if you can't look after your grandkids, but you a moan, there's something wrong with you. I know every grandkid can't be perfect, but they're only kids. I mean, that caller that says he, 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 he merely spoke to his his. his I think I met a son or daughter saying that we've got to have grandkids look after them. That's, that's, to me, that's stupid. He comes up in the cuckoo land. Mm -hmm. No, as I say, uh, that's my people. I mean, I was 60, and I took the bears long, long walks. I used to walk from Port uh, for New Haven, right away along the King's Road at Portobello, pushing the, the pram. And then the days I was singing. But now since I got the cancer, I can't sing. 
<laughs> right. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, as you say, it's it's all about grandparents taking a, a bit of enjoyment out of the role, isn't it? Surely. It it, it keeps you young. That... I'm not. I'm not telling lie. I'm of eight to three in June, and people turn and say, well, "You're not eight to three. You're only about seventy. I said, "No, I'm eight to three. Yeah. It keeps you young, looking. Robin, thank you very much indeed for coming on with, with your call uh, in answer to, to Stephen's thoughts that um, grandchildren, if you can't look after your children, then, then you shouldn't be having them, was basically what he thought in a nutshell. Uh, keep your calls coming in. Before we, we take some more, we've talked before about the struggle to make a living on the high street, but are we beyond the point where it can be saved? Figures out, now I'd like you to consider this because, you know, there's lots of thoughts sometimes about, um, oh, the high streets are, are empty, they've got two let signs on them, there's far too many charity shops in our high streets, it's not what it used to be. And I've said before that I think a lot of the councils got it wrong when we went for pedestrianisation in uh, many of these town centres. Uh, that's where it went wrong as far as I was concerned. But... We can't ignore that we went from the high street to the out-of-town shopping centres, which are still very, very popular. Uh, they're popular for a reason. You can go and you can visit half a dozen. You can have a cup of coffee. Uh, normally, there's no parking charges. And you don't have to be hunting around for a parking space. So, think about the store closures. They're running at more than five a week. And not as many are opening to replace them. And it used to be the high street shops were closing. Now it's not just the high streets. It's moving on to the retail parks. Shops that are there are closing down. As retail again changes and moves towards more and more shopping on the internet. The decline is happening faster in Scotland than anywhere else in the UK. And the biggest casualties are closed shops, followed by travel agents, and then the banks, which we can see disappearing from the streets. And the empty units are most likely to be filled by Chinese takeaways, tea rooms, coffee shops, bars and restaurants. And they don't all survive, do they? How many times can you look on a street near you where a bar or a restaurant has opened up and within a few months the shutters come down that lies empty again? As I say, we used to blame the out-of-town retail parts, but now some of the big national chains that fill them, they're struggling as well. Toys R Us have gone bust, they're going. Carpet Right is closing dozens of stores. The electronic shop's Maplin is gone. So what's it like trying to make a go of it? I think people who open retail shops at the moment are very, very brave. Lynn Duffus is one of them. She opened Lovely Things Gift Shop in Dundee uh, last month and spoke to our reporter, Hazel Martin. I'm a, a small business owner and um, it, it's harder than ever now to, uh, to have a small business in, uh, in a city like Dundee. Um, I think... These fantastic little shops bring colour and uh, and creativity to a community. And if people don't support them, then you lose that colour, you lose the personality, and it makes every city then become exactly the same as the next one. Um, and th that's why I think it's important. And what do you make of the fact that more shops are actually closing than opening? And why do you think this is happening? 
I think um, the, the high street generally is, uh, is at the mercy of the internet, and, and I understand that. I understand, I'm a parent of two kids. Um, I'm, I'm a working mum. I understand the ease of, of shopping at the big uh, websites and, and, and the delivery times and, um, you know, it saves you having to get in the car and get your kids packed in and all the rest of it. And I understand that, but at the same time... Um, they're going to lose that the kind of vibe and the excitement of, of going into time with their kids or, you know, especially with Dundee, especially. Um, and certainly there's things going on in Perth as well. I know it's all being developed that if they don't support the little independent shops, then there's going to be no excitement. We're just going to be um, dull and mundane like so many other big cities are across the UK. And, and I think that hopefully Dundee and Perth can avoid that. But people do have to come out and, and support us. And we're trying our hardest. It's very hard to, to price match all the time. It's very hard to, um, to, to beat uh, a big supplier that, that's a big chain online. But um, you're not getting the experience if you don't come in and see us and, uh, and support us. And hopefully we will get to know you and we'll give you a lovely discount. You opened Lovely Things uh, recently, so knowing what you do with the opinions that you have, with the way things are going, why choose to go into business now? Um, I, I had a business in Dundee, I had a shop in Dundee uh, for five years, and uh, a lot of people used to come into the shop and, and say that, oh, that's a lovely shop, but you've peaked too early. You know, it was all the V&A effect, and I, I kind of um, started too early. Um, and a lot of people, I think, thought I'd shut because of, of financial reasons, and it wasn't that. It was, it was personal and it was uh, work commitments and other things. Um, and I missed having my shop. And I think what's been really good is I've been away for two years and people have said how much they missed my shop because they missed having something different. They missed um, having um, personal customer service. They missed having a chat. They missed just, you know, it, it's just not as faceless as having a big department store. Then maybe people don't know who you are or, or, or don't really care who you are. So... Um, I, I love having my shop. I missed it when it was away. And the reason I brought it back was, yeah, it's really hard work. And retail is not a work in the park, uh, especially when you're up, you're up against the internet. Um, but I, I, I'm, I, love, I love being back. And I think people love being, having me back. And that's, uh, that's been a, a true teller that it's the right thing to do. Lynn Duffus, who opened the Lovely Things gift shop in Dundee last month. James Donald survived a lot of tough times at another gift shop, Concrete Wardrobe in Edinburgh, where our senior reporter Hope Webb popped in to get his thoughts. I do think it is tricky, and I think, you know, with our store, Concrete Wardrobe, we've been open for, this is our 18th year in business, and we've stuck to our guns with what we do which is the promotion of Scottish-based or trained designer makers. And we haven't really deviated from that. So our price points tend to be slightly elevated because of who supplies us with the work. So everything we have is either one-off or small batch production. So it's pieces that you wouldn't normally see in other high street stores. So I think we've, we've kind of ridden a few kind of... Um, negatives like you know the credit card crunch bank fiasco um a few years back we've kind of ridden that out and we've come out the other end um i i mean it is troubling that there's so many stores closing down but i think there's many many factors to that and i think you know specifically edinburgh city council could do more to retain um more of its independent shops to keep the high street alive and keep the high street different 
um, you know, with, with, with kind of independent stores being able to stay open longer, if that makes sense. And when it comes to independent stores and, and businesses struggling, what tends to be the most common reasons that these days? For closing down? Yeah, or just, you know, generally I, finding a slump. Finding it, well, I mean, it's all sorts of things. I mean, we had trouble with the trams being installed. I know that other retailers on the street, on Broughton Street, are having problems with the St James's Centre renovations. Um, when we have roadworks happening here on Broughton Street, which we've had done a couple of times, that really does affect us. Um, people can't get parked, people can't nip in, people are inconvenienced by the roadworks, so they tend not to stop off at the stores, even when they're on foot, they won't, they won't come down. Um, and I think Edinburgh City Council could actually do something about the parking situation, but I mean, that's something that we've chatted about, grumbled about for quite a long time, and it just won't go away. I mean, there's all sorts of other competition, like, you know, online sales, the internet, other retailers opening up within the area. Um, yeah, I've, we've got lots and lots of things to think about and try and juggle. And we don't always get it right, but we, we do constantly have to keep one step ahead of, of what's going on. So even like the big retailers, like maybe chains that have closed down, you know, I, I kind of have to think about that as well. Why have they closed down? James Donald from the Concrete Wardrobe in Edinburgh. Hope's also been getting the views of Stuart McKinnon from the Federation of Small Businesses in Scotland. These figures relate to large multiples, not independent firms, but they do make stark reading for if you're interested in the future of the of the Scottish High Street. What we need to see is action to support local independent businesses, but they can't do it on their own. We need to see the public sector and big business continue to support small towns Scotland. I mean, what action do you mean when you say that? I mean, how, how easy is this a problem to fix? Well, what we need to see are more of our public services locating in the middle of our, uh, of our communities, taking, some up, taking up some of those empty uh, units that are such a, an eyesore. We need to make it um, affordable and ex uh, we need to make our town centres both affordable and accessible. Um, and we need to get people out and enjoying the centres of their conurbations. So I guess, you know, it's about making the high street a priority and, and bringing it back to the, the heart of a town or a city. Absolutely. And we're not going to turn the, the clock back. We're not going to go to the, turn back to the shopping habits of old, but we can still make our town centres and our high streets great places to, uh, to, to live in. And that means getting a wide variety of businesses into our town centres, not just shops, and getting a wide variety of services that people like to use um, back onto our high street. I mean, this is a problem that we have seen kind of progress in the last little while. You know, it's not just cropped out of nowhere. You know, slowly businesses have been leaving the high streets um, because of, of various reasons. Do you think we have gotten to that point now where people are starting to set up? This change hasn't happened overnight. We saw the growth of supermarkets. We saw the growth of retail parks and out-of-town malls. And lastly, we're, we're beginning to see online chipping away at our town centres and our, and our high streets. If we want a strong future for our high streets, then we think, need to think about new ways of using them. We need to see diversification on the high street. We need to see in public investment. We need to see all sorts of businesses 
get rooted into the centre of our of our communities, and that requires a change in uh, change in mindset from some of the from some of the authorities. Generally speaking, um, town centres have been a, an afterthought in comparison to uh, getting getting new uh, parks built out out of the city, and we need to ensure that we um, make sure that our community spending power is channeled towards the independent businesses, whether it's shops, restaurants, bars in our towns, and not suck towards um, out-of-town uh, operators. Stuart McGinnon from the Federation of Small Businesses in Scotland was his thoughts on what's happening on the high street. If you've got a thought, maybe you are indeed involved in retailing and uh, you, you think you know that there is uh, something that could be done by the councils that is not being done, um, they must take the responsibility here and help out the retailers, surely. Then uh, give us a call or indeed get in touch. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Joseph has called Scotland's Talkin'. Joseph, good morning. Good, good morning, Ali. Ali, it goes back to, to the, the, the modern-day countries. We gave these countries this, this agencies of weapons and gases and all that, and then we go and bomb them. It's costing millions and billions of pounds again, Ali. So it's it's going through one side, giving them the stuff, and then you go and bomb it, Ali. So nobody wins a situation, Ali. What would you have done? Were they correct in going in? Yes, it's naturally. They said, Ali, the whole thing, people should sit down and really have a good look at each other and say, look, we're killing innocent people here. Innocent people was the ones that's getting all the thing to them. Not, not, not the leaders of the countries, Ali. They're safe and sound. They're sending them in to bomb, but there's people all live around in these villages and tribes. Ali, we done that thing way back years ago, was when they tribes were running about with swords and shit, that's what done, they done it with their own tribal way. They fought amongst each other. And once the modern world got up, we learned them how to use these big enormous weapons, Ali. OK, thank you very much indeed, uh, Joseph. Sorry we're cutting you off there, but we've got uh, uh, quite a bit to get through before the end of the programme. Bill, was it right to launch military action? Of course it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, why, why did they do it when they'd done it? We were about to put inspectors in there. Now, surely common sense tells you, let's find the proof, absolute proof without doubt. Everybody's going about now, should they or shouldn't they? Should they? Surely we should, like in any court case, you find the absolute truth and act on that. Now, even so, I mean, even the way we act, we're just going about like bullies. We have, I mean, you've, you've got to look at it. There's been over a million people killed. A million. We've, we've used that number as if it's a lottery. It's ridiculous. You know, we, we went into Iraq nearly 15 years ago under a false flag, supposedly. We've gone into Libya again for no reason whatsoever but to topple the, the, the person who we didn't like. Now we've gone into Syria. Syria has been going on again for five years. There's a 12, up to 12 million people being displaced, turned into refugees. The country's been decimated. I mean, we, we, we put, put about this propaganda, this anti-Muslim thing, and it, it seems to be all right to go around killing Muslims, as in Palestine. You know, you, you know they're all linked. You know, I'm not just jumping the gun. They're all linked. You've got the, the crisis in Palestine. You've got... 
children being locked up, human rights totally abused, and yet all of a sudden we mention chemical weapons, and oh my, oh my, we better do something about it. Let's go and bomb them again. Let's go and create another half a dozen, or no, not half a dozen, another hundred terrorists so that we could all cower and, and be ashamed of ourselves, you know, be trying to hide away from these so-called Muslim terrorists. Who's the terrorist? Who's creating terror? You know, they, you know America, the West, and, and, and we're talking about dictatorships. Well, obviously, we didn't put it through Parliament, so we, mm. we all of a sudden have a dictator. Indeed, indeed. Bill, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, as we got uh, quite a few to try and get through in the next five minutes or so. Um, and, and quite a few comments coming through on all the subjects, uh, coming through on Twitter and on social media in general. Uh, Saul has joined us. He's uh, been watching the, the Twitters there. So what do you got? Have good morning to you. Good morning. Um, Sharon's tweeted in this morning to stay back in the day with all family orientated childcare, not farming our children out to childcare pre 1970s, but the government had ideas from the 80s onwards. Okay, here's one. Grandparents has actually uh, picked up quite a few comments at the moment. Here's one from Mary. Watching grandchildren can also play a huge part in alleviating the loneliness, which you discussed in a previous programme, which can often be a major problem for a grandparent living alone and provide a much needed purpose to fill the empty nest. This I know to be true. Well, on Twitter this morning, we asked, what should the UK be doing in Syria in response to the latest use of chemical weapons? Mr B has tweeted in to say, we shouldn't be doing anything until there is proof of what has happened and who carried out the attack. After all, look what happened in Iraq. OK, I'm sticking with grandparents on the text here. Good morning, and this one's in from Claire, which is a bit of a sad one, actually, when I was reading it there. Uh, I'm in the situation at the moment where I'm on maternity leave and it's nearly time to go back to work. I would rather look after my baby myself and not have to go back to work, but this isn't possible as I'm a single parent. And financially, I would not have enough money to live on. I only want to go back to work two days a week and looking for a nursery place is extremely difficult. I would love to have grandparents to help out, but none of my daughter's grandparents are really involved in her life. It's so sad, really. She's seven months old and has only saw her grandparents once, and my mum, she hasn't even met her at all. All the parents who get help from grandparents are very lucky, and it's a nice bond between child and grandparent. Have a good day, Claire. Thank you very much indeed for your thoughts. Sticking with Syria on Twitter, Jonathan's tweeted in to say, We should be staying out of Syria time and time again. Our foreign policy of intervention has never worked. See what happened to Iraq and Libya. Right, there's a couple of comments that uh, can link together here regarding Stephen's call. One says, um, what a load of rubbish that guy was talking. I'm a gran and I'm happy to support my sons and their wives. They're hardworking and giving their kids a good life and I'm a happy gran. That comes from Joanna and another one from Liz that says, Stephen, that man should go and boil his head. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just a few people would like the flame. <laughs> right. You got any more? I've got one more and it's on shops this morning. 
John's tweeted in to say shops are closing to retail parks, large stores monopoly and the internet. The council should stop the retail giants from building outside of the towns. Ah, but they say that's they will the councils are in a rock and a hard place. You've got people saying we want better shopping facilities. These big stores on the out on the, the outskirts of the town, that's where a lot of them want to go. They don't want to go into the high streets because the high streets are empty. So it's that catch twenty two situation. Uh, however I do you know I'll mention this one that because I think it's 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 an ongoing um, problem in and something that's been debated in a, a local area and that's Angus um, where they're thinking of reintroducing or they're, they're proposing to reintroduce parking charges. Um, now, you know, the shops are um, are sort of, you know, we know they're, they're having a tough time. So why would you bring in parking charges? You know, I know the councils have got to um, you know, They've got to find the extra money somewhere. They are short. I've, I've said my sympathies for councils before and the decisions councillors have to make. But everything that's involved in parking metres, etc., the costs of that um, and what it's going to do, will people just then head to another retail park because all of a sudden you used to get free parking in towns in Angus like Carnoustie, um, Forfar, etc., and now they're planning on charging for them. Mind you, that's the same council that has a councillor who has proposed that you would have to show your passport when you go to a recycling centre to bin your carpet or whatever. You couldn't make it up, could you? Come on. You couldn't make it up. Come on. I really thought they were out. Come on. You know, council should surely be working together, but he's worried that people from one town are heading into another area and therefore his idea was that you should take your passport along with you. Uh, I think you should go and bow your head as well, councillor. Anyway, um, some more. Assad is a bully. If a teacher talks to a bully at school saying, please stop bullying your classmates, do you think they'll stop? Of course they won't. Assad has achieved his position by crushing opposition. Bullies only respect force and will only back down to a bigger, stronger opponent. If you want to prevent his choking children to death, you have to take action. Uh, Martin in Scotland. Thank you very much indeed. Martin, uh, right, who else is there here? Um, hello, I would like to make a comment on grandparents that are looking after their grandchildren. I've looked after my grandchildren and have thoroughly enjoyed every minute and would never dream of wanting to be paid, as to me it was a pleasure and joy to be able to spend time to see them growing up. Glad that I could help and let my son and his wife go to work and made a better life for him and his family. So there we are. That's uh, uh, generally some of the, the comments that are coming in. Still a lot more there. Um, I can just men- finish on one on Syria. Uh, this one says, Yes, I fear Theresa May has jumped the gun and she should have called on her MPs to ask them what their thoughts were on this situation. Makes me wonder if she's the right person to lead our country and uh, she could lead us into more conflicts in the future. Thank you very much indeed for your input today, whether it was via text or uh, whatever it was, social media or indeed on the phones. Really most appreciated. This has been Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Thank you to Saul for answering the calls and the Twitters. And we're both back next Sunday with Scotland's Talking from 10. Until then, have a good week. Bye-bye. Scotland's Talking. The podcast.